The song is called Low on High, the band Cult with No Name. A musical duo consisting of Eric Steen and John Books, the band formed in 2004. Referring to themselves as electronic balladeers, Cult with No Name recently finished recording their 10th album during lockdown. I spoke to Eric about his career. So Cult with No Name, um, first of all why that name? Okay, why that name? Right, so uh, a number of different reasons. Um, so <clears throat> firstly, I always wanted a band name that didn't start with the, and that's because I heard, I heard Gary Newman once say that the reason he chose the name Chuboy Army for Chuboy Army was because whenever you, all the punk bands were forming, all the punk bands were called the something. You know, the Dam, the Stranglers, the, the Clash, you know, they all, the Sex Pistols, they all had the. But when we were forming and we formed, there was a massive resurgence of bands calling themselves the. You know, the Hives, the Vives, the Strokes, the Zootons, the Delays, the, the White Stripes, you know, everyone was called the something. So I thought, okay, I don't want a band called the. I was reading a book called um, Join Me by Danny Wallace, uh, the um, sort of, he's sometime a comedian, uh, sort of journalist. And it was about a cult with no name. So it was basically, he put an advert in a, in a local newspaper. It just said, join me. And um, he got people writing to him. And he started this, this kind of cult with no name, essentially. And I was just reading that book. I thought it was quite a funny story. And then cult with the name, the term, refers to kind of, was the first term used for the new romantics. And because we had a bit of a, an 80s influence... I thought, oh, well, that's quite a nice little nod to the kind of early '80s influences. So I, um, I thought, yeah, let's let's call ourselves that. Really, it was sort of slightly ridiculous having a band with two people calling yourselves Colt with a name as well, <laughs> which is was something. But it just kind of stuck. And it's funny how names kind of, after a while, they lose all meaning, don't they? Names when you when you you say them enough times, you don't even think what the words mean anymore. So you refer to yourselves as post-punk, half-drunk, atmospheric, esoteric electronic balladeers which sounds like right. a song uh, please yeah. explain what that means wow where did you dig that out from because that was <laughs> our first original i printed up ten thousand postcards when we first formed with that written on it and uh, it soon got shortened <laughs> to just post-punk electronic balladeers i just it was just being pretentious really you know just trying to um sum up what we do but the electronic balladeers bit has stuck and I think it's, you know, we, we are broadly electronic and actually we've become more and more electronic over the years, I would say, as we've become more confident with the technology. Yeah, and, and then the post-punk is because I've got a lot of kind of post-punk and punky kind of influences so that doesn't always come across in the music. Sometimes does, although John is more kind of classical influenced. People tell us very kindly that we, we sound quite different to other stuff. Um, that, that uh, is out now, which may or may not be true. Other people have said, had we existed at a different time, we'd be a lot bigger than we are. But, um, you know, in the middle 80s, you know, that kind of time of sort of talk, talk, and the, the, and, and those sorts of people, Blue Nile, those sorts of bands, maybe would we would have fitted in with that scene, I don't know. But you don't, you know, when you start out, you don't really, you don't really know what you are, do you? So you just kind of, you just do what you do, and you let other people decide and make up their mind. But people have had a hard time in categorising us, which I've enjoyed. <laughs> I've, it, it's, 
it's been to our disadvantage sometimes because when it gets to play, you know, playing live and things, where do you fit in? You know, when we started out, we we split our time between playing kind of acoustic singer-songwriter venues where because we had a keyboard and a synthesizer, people kind of turned their nose up at it and turned their nose up at it. Uh, and then we'd also play kind of electronic nights at the likes of Madame Jojo's and places like that. And people were kind of perplexed that we would do songs that didn't have any drums in, you know. So it was, um, it was, you know, we kind of always sat somewhere between different different genres. And so if if the genre doesn't exist, then just make one up. It's, it's funny you mentioned that because I just remember the first time I ever saw you play, which was at the Hope and Anchor, and I came with oh, my cousin. God, that was a Terrible gig, yeah. <laughs> well, I remember that gig. I came with a cu- my cousin and a friend of his who said, I stood open mouthed as he said, This guy said something along the lines of, Well, there's some nice songs there, but have you thought about uh, adding a bass player and, uh, and maybe a drummer <laughs> and a guitarist? I was thinking, You've completely missed the point here. Missed the point, yeah. But that, but yeah, and, and uh, we still get that now sometimes. We we're, were a bit more kind of, there's more drums in the stuff now than there used to be, but. No, I do remember that Hope and Anchor gig as being particularly bad. I was really excited because we'd playing the Hope and Anchor, of course, and that probably why it was so bad. I was just just wasn't relaxed at all. I was over trying far too hard. But but yeah, you do you you kind of grow into you you and then when people sort of said, oh, it's it's quite difficult. One of the first descriptions we had we couple of, we had a our first album. There was a nice a review that said as if. Um, the Rat Pack had been abducted by the New Romantics. I thought, that's a nice one. I like that one. And then we had some nice comparisons to people like Scott Walker in the early years, which I really liked. Um, and and occasionally, the, the actual influences we have do get mentioned. Which is so nice. I was going to ask you about... Um, you, mean you got into electronic music from a very early age, didn't you? Tell, tell me about that. Yeah, well, I, getting into music at an early age was the first thing. I mean, I have an older brother, and five years older and and you're really aware of music fashion aren't you and mute and at that time he had a two-tone patch on his jacket i would have been what six or seven but i was aware of what that meant and he had you know he had specials ghost town he had uh, some bad manners singles he had toya adam and the ants you know that kind of stuff just aware of it um so that was one thing, and 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 kind of nicking his tapes and things like that, uh, because he had obviously had stuff that was current, which I wouldn't have had access to when I was sort of seven, eight years old. Then my dad is a big music fan, jazz fan, so that would be play. He used to play the same records over and over again. A big Rolling Stones fan as well. When we went on a holiday, we only ever went to two places: visiting relatives in Germany or going driving to the south of France. And really long, tedious car journeys where music would be constantly playing. And it always used to be the same stuff, you know, Rolling Stones. There was also, there's a band, a German band called La Dusseldorf, who are kind of like a krautrock band, who uh, now have quite a big cult following or big influences on people like OMD. And he had the first La Dusseldorf albums, which were quite out there, actually. And so they were electronic, and so I really liked that. And then I remember my brother had had um, uh, the, a copy of the first Art of Noise album on tape, there was a, a, a compilation that came out in the, in the 80s. It was, it was a competitor to the, to the Now series. It was called Hits, and you had Hits 1, Hits 2. Blah, blah, blah. And we had the first Hits album, me and my brother. And that's where I discovered The Stranglers as well, because I remember The Stranglers were on there, and I remember The Art of Noise were on there, and I really loved both of those things. That are, they're completely unrelated, but I think I just like weird noises, really. And, and that was my, my routine. I thought, wow, this is, this is something I never heard 
I'd never heard anything like it. You know, close to the edit was 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 the single from the Art of Noise that that kind of spiked my interest. And kind of alongside it, you know, and again, I didn't know I was making the connection. I remember in primary school, um, we did a lesson where we uh, the teacher played us some music, and we had to write down the images that the music gave us. And there was this one piece of music which was really uh, didn't know it was electronic music, but it was just really nothing like nothing I'd ever heard. Really strange and weird. And um, I asked my teacher, "What what is it?" And he said, "Oh, it's a track called On the Run by a band called Pink Floyd." And it was on the on the run from Dark Side of the Moon. And um, he lent me, as my teacher, you know, lent me Dark Side of the Moon. And I wasn't that, didn't get into, wasn't massively into Pink Floyd, but that track on the run, I thought was really remarkable. And you mentioned the Stranglers. Uh, I, I've often had this debate with you about um, uh, your favourite album is Feline, which still mystifies me. Uh, but that it sort of fits with the the kind of music you you make. Well, yeah, and I mean Feline, but with you know. Black and white, close second, I would say, and and you know we should say that one of the, the way we met is because I I star spotted you on the tube <laughs> as the famous uh, uh, journalist and author Jim Drury because I went to the launch of Song by Song, your book obviously with with Hugh Cornwell for the Stranglers, and we went to that launch and I went with my girlfriend at the time, and um, and Hugh played a few songs acoustically and stuff, and she said to me and she was a musician that girlfriend she said you've studied him very hard. <laughs> which I thought was interesting. So, that, yeah, that influence has really seeped in. The Stranglers in general, yeah, just a, a you know, remarkable band. Again, difficult to categorise, you know. Just think of an album like Raven, where would you put that? Even even Black and White and Feline. Feline, I think, Absolutely. was remarkable because it was kind of like a sort of a, pink, a, a pop album, but not. I mean, it was, you know, they were massively high on drugs at the time, weren't they? So very dysfunctional, <laughs> perhaps as a unit. Um this the instrumentation, you know, having the kind of acoustic guitars versus sort of drum machines and yep, synthesizers, yep. like every Stranglers album, lyrically very very interesting. And I guess what one of the things that kept me going in terms of the interest with the Stranglers is because every album sounded so different. Because yes. I didn't kind of, yeah. as a, a ten eleven year old, I wasn't buying them in, or receiving them in chronological order. I remember as a ten or ten or eleven, my best friend at primary school gave me a copy of Rattus Navegicus, uh, which is quite an, al- quite, <laughs> quite an album. That's quite an album. Exactly, quite an album to get as a 10-year-old. And I remember talking about the song Peaches with my primary... This is a different primary school teacher. Primary school teacher, I remember talking about the song Peaches and uh, understanding what it meant, <laughs> even at that age. And... Um, and I guess having quite, yeah, so a bit precocious, and that's maybe my, and also my my parents probably didn't know what they were getting me into because they would, you know, when I said I love the, they would just kind of buy me anything that had the Stranglers written on for my birthday. So I do remember, and there's a photo of me somewhere, I think on my twelfth birthday or possibly my thirteenth birthday, opening a copy of uh, Live in Excerpt, which has got <laughs> on the front cover for those that don't know, has got Stranglers in Nude Woman Horror Shock written in massive letters on the cover. Yeah. So, yeah, quite eye-opening, Tremendous. I suppose. <laughs> so grateful to my parents for just having no degree of censorship yeah. whatsoever. Yeah, very liberal. But, that's, but the, Str- and the Stranglers always... I love bands that always intrigue you. You never know what you're going to get with the next album. Yeah, they reinvented know, themselves every album, didn't they? Yeah. They reinvented themselves every album, like Bowie and like lots of other people. And that is tremendously exciting. Before you got to Cult With No Name, what was your period of getting into playing music and, and um, how did you get into Cult With No Name? 
Colton and Aim is my first and only band, actually. And that probably says a, a lot about me in terms of kind of how kind of arrogant I was about the stuff that I was producing. I mean, I spent, you know, I got into making music as a, as a teenager and, and I got really into kind of home recording out of boredom more than anything else, you know, where I, I lived, grew up in very, very suburban household. Um, this is to, to really paint the picture for you that the street that I grew up on and where, where my parents still live is the street where The Good Life was filmed. And um, so it wasn't filmed in Surbiton, it was in Northwood, in northwest London. Because the local comprehensive school, the one closest to me, which is still quite a way away, was not great at that time. So my parents fought to get me into a, into a school a bit further away, which my brother was going to, so they managed to get me in. Um, I lived quite far away from my friends. So I never saw any of my school friends outside of school. So I was just really bored. And so that's why I kind of started making music, really. And then, anyway, I, used to, I, I amassed, you know, I got really into kind of home taping and I kind of got a little four-track in my sort of late teens. And in throughout my late teens and early 20s, I just wrote lots of songs and recorded them. And with four-tracks, you know, it teaches you quite a lot about production because you're having to, um, you know, you record on three parts and you bounce those parts down to another track and that leaves you with it. And there's, there's a lot of... There's a lot of sort of production and arrangement stuff involved in, in obviously just doing everything yourself and a lot of, a lot of uh, dreadful failures along the way. And then I, I did do some gigs on my own and the ridiculous thing was what I used to do is I used to take my four track along and just have that as a kind of backing track and fade stuff in and out. And uh, because I'm six foot two, the only thing that was kind of high enough that I could put it on was an ironing board. So... <laughs> So I used to, I used to go around and with my fork truck under one arm and an ironing board in the other, go into these kind of not many, but I did a few, pubs and clubs etc. Just just playing playing on my ironing board, or or delusion, I or think, both. Or, or or both. And of course you would, I'd be on the tube and stuff, and people would be like, oh, is, is your ironing board had a good night out and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> And uh, I quickly realised that this was this was going nowhere fast. And then I, by that time, I'd met uh, John, John Books. And um, although we didn't start a band straight away, when I was a girl, I didn't destroy. I thought, well, what is best for the world? And left it all the boys. This is When I Was A Girl from Cult With No Name's 2017 album, Hair Of The Dog. I asked Eric how he met John Books. So where did you meet John? Uh, working at HMV. The first uh, job I had after university was uh, working at HMV and it was great. HMV Trocadero. Everyone there couldn't care less about the job, obviously. They're all aspiring musicians and artists and actors and stuff. So it was a real melting pot of different people. And um, I'd already been there over a year and he started as Christmas Temp. He was already in a band and had been in various millions of bands. And then we stayed mates and stuff. And then several years later, the opportunity kind of arose, really. He's classically trained, isn't he? Yeah, he studied. And also he studied... Um, music with a history of art. But he's classically trained in the sense he's also got the classical influence, you know, because he actually listens and loves and collects and buys classical music, which I don't at all. So that's quite important to Colton and Ames sound, I think. 
And how, how do you think you two complement each other? Well, that, first of all, you know, obviously the influences, there's an overlap. The overlap has to be a kind of aesthetic overlap in terms of your approach to stuff. But you can have completely different influences, but somewhere in the middle they, they, they meet. So, you know, there are influences that overlap. We complement each other in terms of, well, a temperament. We're both quite laid-back people, possibly a bit too much sometimes. <laughs> um, so we, we get on, which helps. And we were mates before we started the band, you know. We also, I think, one of the things that's helped keep us together is we've never been... It's interesting when you read some, when you read rock biographies and you read about how everyone grow, grew apart. You know, in the early days, we used to hang out all the time. We used to live with each other, and then we just slowly grew apart. And we were always very good mates, and we still are, but we've never like, lived together. We've never been in any way financially dependent on each other, that kind of stuff. So there's always been a healthy distance, which means you don't have this kind of, you know, oh, you know, you, you, yeah, you look back with kind of rose-tinted spectacles in some way, you know. It's just just is what it is. And then we complement each other in terms of our approaches, you know. I'm very, because I'm not a particularly proficient musician, I can, you know, I write hopefully decent songs and the rest of it, and I'm okay at production. But I'm quite methodical in how I do things, you know. I'm very aware when I'm arranging songs about, okay, I've repeated that three times, I've got that section there. Um, I'm quite aware of where everything goes. Johnny, he's uh, he's a lot more kind of freeform in how he does stuff. He doesn't play things the same way twice, and that's largely because he's got an absolutely terrible memory. And that used to really annoy me in the early days because I'd be like, why, "Why are you playing it? You know, playing it live? Well, you've played that completely different." But it's excellent because it keeps it fresh, of course. Um, but he's he's much more consistent in his sound choices. So he uses the same sounds over and over again, but he applies it in quite a freehandy kind of improvisatory that's the word way whereas I am I like to be a bit quite esoteric with the sounds and stuff but I'm quite kind of logical and methodical how I how I lay them down and how do you divide the the writing and the playing well I write the songs initially and I mean it's changed over the years in terms of how I do that usually on guitar these days but that's purely because if you think you know a song is is melody and chords then that's what you do when you when you pick up a guitar you strum it you know if you sit at a piano or a keyboard well a i don't have a piano if i have a keyboard i have to plug it in and turn it on all that kind of stuff so it just takes longer so just grab a guitar but to get to that point these days you know i tend more and more to to record melodies on my phone if i'm out and about i might think of a melody i'm always kind of humming something and if something's unique enough or interesting enough i'll record it on my phone and at some point Often when I'm driving, I actually just have to kind of pull over and <laughs> record into my phone. And then at some point, I might take a couple of different voice notes and piece them together. Okay, that could be the verse, that could be the chorus. I figure out what the chords are, and it kind of goes from there. And then the arrangement-wise, depends. if it's called more an acoustic song, then I kind of take that to John Morris immediately, and we kind of lay down the, the piano, and he does that very quickly, like three takes, three, four takes, bang, let's record it. And then we kind of fine-tune it, which we've got the luxury of doing with, with MIDI and stuff. And then if it's electronic track, I usually lay down some loops, bass lines, a few other bits and bobs. And then it comes to a point where, okay, John needs to add, you know, atmospherics and piano and strings and things. So that's really how it goes. And, of course, we're fortunate, being an electronic band, we can send files back and forth, you know. We've got to a stage, yeah, in the early days we were in a room together a lot more. But nowadays we trust each other as we know what our strengths are and we can really, you know, bang them out, you know, when sometimes they're 
crap sometimes. That's that's the other thing. It's knowing knowing when a song isn't working. You know, there've been times when we've abandoned stuff, but we we've worked together long enough to know when to just like no. So so you know there are songs that are have taken many years to actually finally appear on Colton and Name albums just because. You know, just was. Oh, let's just leave that. You know, we'll leave that for a while, and then I'll come back to it because we don't like to waste stuff. If you're too close to a song, you just you endlessly noodle with it when actually it needs a complete overhaul. So, just on the next album, there's uh, well, there's a couple of tracks. There's a track called Ruins, and there's a track called Home Again, both of which we kind of finished for the last album, but I was just I just wasn't happy with it. So, you know, and it's usually the drums with me. I'm usually if the drums aren't working, then it's just not not right. So you collaborate a lot with other musicians. Is that mainly because there's two of you, or is it because is it because it opens so many doors to other musical possibilities? Yeah, it's a bit of both, and because uh, it's two of us, and sometimes we need help, especially when we did the soundtrack. You know, Blue Velvet Revisited. We definitely needed some acoustic instruments on there. Um, John's actually his first instrument when he studied music at university is trombone. And have for about 14 years been trying to get him to play trombone, but he kind of refuses. <laughs> but <laughs> trying to, you know, they'll play you know, a bit of trombone here and there, it might be nice. <clears throat> but it's also a little bit with, it depends who you're talking about, with likes of John Ellis and, and, and uh, yeah. you know, who obviously was in the Strangs after Hugh left. There's also, you know, when I first got to know John, he's a very good, he's a very good mate now, but it was like, Bloody hell, that's John Ellis. We could have John Ellis on our album, you know. That would be, be amazing. Well, he so, made a real difference to Another Landing, didn't he? It's a very, he made some real impact on that record. He did, and there's there's a track on the previous album as well called Iddy's Admin, which has mm. got some amazing Ebo yeah. guitar. Um, so fantastic, you know, that, that John did that. So we're not just having him on there just to for the sake of having a name on there. It's just... To, because he can add great stuff. The same with Tuxedo Moon, you know. I was a big fan of them in the 20s, and, and the thought of being able to have them on our album was great, but also they're incredible musicians, so why wouldn't you? And when you when you work with someone like Tuxedo Moon, um, how much of it is prescriptive from you? We basically just give them the track and say, and say off you go, you know. There's a lot of editing that's involved when it comes back with Tuxedo Moon a bit, you know, so they're usually, they'll play a few takes and stuff, you've got a few ideas, so, uh, and then we kind of go from there. With Kelly, Kelly Ali, it's it's much more, because she's done so many tracks with us now, It's there's very little we have to do, to be honest, other than tweak the effects sometimes, she sends it back. So it depends on the person, really, but it all works out all right in the end. So, of course, you and, uh, you got together with Tuxedo Moon, who I remember you putting on a, putting on a gig for them in, oh, I don't know when that was, 2007 or so. Did you come to that? I did, it was at the Angel, somewhere at the Angel. It was was at the Slimelight, yeah, Electroworks, yeah. Yeah. I remember there being a man who was inside a cage in the audience. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, still there, still there, I think. (laughs) He hasn't been let out. Um, Let me out! (laughs) But so they, I know they were a massive influence on you, so how did you get to work with them? It was through that gig, I mean, that gig was a really traumatic experience not because of working with Tuxedo Moon but that's a, that's a story for another time just because it was there was a lot of stress involved well, so your finance was part of it wasn't it you had to finance it yeah and then uh, yeah I can't go into too much details but it was stressful and um, but it was an amazing gig and it was it was, it was yeah. for a very it was a great gig it was the first time they played London in 22 years and so that was amazing and the audience reception was incredible so it kind of 
you know, got to know them through that and, um, you know, tentatively asked once, I think Blaine was the first person, the violin player, well, he plays lots of other stuff, do you want to play a bit of violin on a track? Yeah, sure. And then successive albums have asked different members to play stuff and then we ended up doing this this soundtrack. To, to... Yeah, tell me about the Blue Velvet, that's, I mean, that must have been amazing. It, yeah, it was, I mean... It, so it's a friend of mine is a guy called uh, Peter Bratz. He's a filmmaker, but he was actually I got to know him as a musician. He's a, he was in a punk band, German punk band uh, called Zuf. They did a track called Zurück zum Beton, which means back to the concrete, which is kind of a real German punk anthem. But I really liked Zuf anyway. Anyway, he beca- I did know I, I interviewed him when I was I, I pretended to be a journalist once and I interviewed him, and uh, we became mates and stuff. And I used to send him successive albums, and um, he always liked what what we did. And then one kind of morning, I think it was January, he sent. I got this package through the post. I knew I knew he'd worked with David Lynch on Blue Velvet, and he was invited by David Lynch to to document the making of it. I knew he had all this footage, and uh, he just said, "Oh, I was listening to one of your albums the other day. This track came on, and I thought, oh, I've got all that footage that I've got for um, Blue Velvet because most of it never saw the light of day. He did a very avant-garde film at the time." He's saying, oh, most of that, that footage, I thought, oh, we could edit a really amazing trailer to this footage and we could apply for some funding to, to get to make a new film using all that footage. And that's what I want to do. And then I want to commission you to, to do the soundtrack. Do you mind? <laughs> do I mind? <laughs> you know, and um, the, the original trailer is on YouTube. If you put Blue Velvet, Blue Velvet Revisited Trailer, it's, it's black and white. It's this black and white trailer. And that's what we use to get the funding. It's using a track from one of our albums called As Below. And then we waited a while and we eventually got the, got the funding. And he commissioned us immediately to do the music. And he said, I want you to do the music first. I want you to do an album and I want to edit the footage to the music. Because wow. that's how that's that's how my Yeah, that's how my idea Well, A a lot of his footage was, was silent because he was is it's on super shot on Super Eight. So although he had lots of interviews with Obviously, David Lynch and Dennis Hopper and, and and everyone else. A lot of his footage was silent anyway, so there's going to be a lot of music in it. So the easiest way, perhaps, to do it was to edit to the to the music. But it meant for us, we just had to make an album. Basically, we just <laughs> go for it. Just make an album. But did you see any of the footage beforehand? Uh, yes, we saw a bit of it. Um, yeah, but not much. Uh, we we gave us some rushes and stuff we could look at. He, but he, his, his idea was well that that trailer that track that we that he used for the trailer that's exactly the kind of atmosphere that I want. Just do ninety minutes of that, <laughs> which was was great, and that's why we invited Tuxedo Moon because a on that track as below one of the members of Tuxedo Moon is on that who plays flugelhorn of all things, uh, Luke, which is actually a really amazing instrument. It's much more it's much nicer than trumpets. Much more. Uh, kind of subtle so we thought well we're gonna have to invite tuxedo moon to be on this we can either do it have individual members playing on it we just invite them as a band you know let's just collaborate on it and we also invited john fox uh, the musician john fox to be on it because i knew john fox a bit and i knew peter the director was a massive john fox fan so i thought well i could probably pull a few strings and get john fox on it so i did you know, the only thing that was stressful about it was we didn't have much time to do it in. And in retrospect, we perhaps could have spent longer doing it. But the actual process was really um, very pain-free, to be honest. And he loved what we did. 
as did Tuxedo Moon, surprisingly. Am I right in saying that you finished it and then the film hadn't been made and you had to wait for a long time for the film to be made? Yeah, so he was like, you know, I want it, I need it by this time, you know, always, I need it by this date because I've got to have the film out by such such a date. And da, 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 da. So we really rushed. We dug through the archives. There's a there's a track on there called "Until the Robins Till the Robins Come," which is an old instrumental that we just sort of dug out and got Tuxedo Moon to kind of add stuff to, which is not really the way we wanted to do it. But there's a couple of moments like that. And then we finished it, and then it's like, oh, I've got I've got loads of delays for this other project, so the film's not going to be done until. Uh, it was a little tense, not with us necessarily, but the record company, Cram Discs, who agreed Tuxedo Moon's record label, or the label that they're on, who are a big label in Europe. It was always sold to them that the film and the soundtrack were going to come out at the same time, you know, October 2015, I think it was. But it was delayed and delayed and delayed, and I said, well, okay, this is a bit annoying, but we'll put the, put the soundtrack out. And then the film didn't come out till a whole year later. But the, the funny thing is, I mean, I don't know whether Crammed would agree with me on this but actually it worked out for the best because we had several waves of press because when the album came out we had loads of press I mean it was in the independent it was in the wire loads of the crammed kept a, a press book for a while and it got up to 100 pages within the first month or something or a couple of months you know and then they stopped you know they couldn't keep up anymore so that was amazing and then a year went by and then the film came out and it was, you know, London um, Film Festival premiered it, sold out the ICA. Then David Lynch premiered it in America two days later, which was amazing with, with Laura Dern and Carl McLaughlin uh, doing a Q&A. Uh, and then it went to loads of festivals for, for the following almost two years, 18 months. Lots and lots of festivals internationally, some quite big ones as well. So we got loads of press and it just had this life. And of course that helped with the sales of the soundtrack, etc. And then last year... Criterion Collection in America reissued Blue Velvet on Blu-ray and David Lynch said I want Blue Velvet Revisited as the extra on the it's a double double disc feature you know that was his his idea so we got quite a bit of press again and then one of the tracks was licensed to a TV series in Italy HBO series starring Jude oh, Law the, new, the Pope. new Pope yeah the new Pope which was so it's just had four lives whilst you didn't have this massive bang hit of when when the album and the film came out together it's meant it's had a long long life that album which is uh, good did, did you get any kind of feedback from david lynch he uh he's got a copy of the soundtrack and obviously he's seen the film uh, he's a man of few words <laughs> but <laughs> peter told me he said he was he was shocked at how young everyone looked um but obviously he likes the film because he wouldn't have chosen to to premiere if he didn't and is a film in its own right you know it's it's not just some it's an, if you're expecting it and some people really don't like it for this reason if you're expecting some kind of straight documentary that's going to appease all the nerds in terms of what kind of like what brand of coffee david lynch likes to drink and all this kind of, you know it's not like that at all it's very very it's called peter dubbed it a meditation on a movie and it's about trying to transport you into that time and space so there's no narrative very little narrative. All the footage is in chronological order, but there's little. You know, you got to look for the clues and stuff. So yeah, it worked out really well. It don't matter where you stand.
this song is swept away from Cult With No Name's 2014 album Another Landing, released a year before their soundtrack for Blue Velvet Revisited. Their music undoubtedly lends itself to visual projects, something I asked Eric about. You wrote another album that was a soundtrack and you've had, you mentioned that the song being used for New Pope. Is, I mean, would you agree with that, that it sort of lends itself, it's very atmospheric? I think so. It'd be nice if we get some more, you know, <laughs> get licensed to, to more films and stuff. I think the lyrics probably are a bit too quirky sometimes for, for, for film and TV. But um, yeah, I think so. We try to be, it, to be honest, it's an interesting debate. And uh, uh, I think uh, John and I have often had this debate. I just saw this actually, it was in a, in a review for a Tuxedo Moon album and I've always loved this. I'm a bit of a quotes person actually, I must say. I like little sound. But there was, I've always hated the term cinematic when people call music cinematic. And that's because most people mean uh, would sound good in a film. But what it should mean is instead of going to the movies. And that if we can get to a place where when someone describes our music as cinematic as meaning instead of going to the movies, then that would be nice. So how do you end up... I just read that you have ended up being one of the albums used on, the, on a bullet train in Russia. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a, a random thing. The bullet train that runs between Moscow and St. Petersburg, which is quite a big thing in Russia. Obviously, there's 16 trains a day and they carry about 250,000 people a day or something. Or for a day, or can't be a day, a month maybe. And they wanted to use our music for their kind of in-train entertainment system, like you get in a plane, really. It's obviously, it's quite a luxury experience. And they said, oh, can we, can we have Media Burn, Media Burn, the last album, for like a month or two? And I said, yeah. And I said, you know, we've got nine other albums. Have you? Okay, why don't we have the others as well? So we're going to be on it for until next year. You know, not every album, but certainly five albums uh, are going to be on it. And it's interesting because on, on Apple, you know, you see your stats on Apple, Apple Music and things. And Russia is now the top country for Cult and a Name. That's interesting. Just in the last Germany month. was your biggest... Germany and the USA, because there's a radio station in the USA that plays us a lot. But, um, yeah, Russia's now top, which is interesting. So if, if someone wants to book us for a tour there, then, um, well, wait till next year, obviously, but um, we'll, we'll be there. Excellent. Um, and you said you've mentioned nine albums. I mean, you've been pretty proficient. That's, that's nine since yeah. 2007. I mean, how, how are you so proficient? Uh, well, I enjoy doing it. You know, I'm not, I don't watch that much telly of an evening i like um sitting down working on music i'm a bit restless until it's finished i'm one of those people that's a bit if i've written a song for example i'm just you know on guitar and stuff and it's on my phone you know there's that old saying isn't there something doesn't exist until it's written down and so with with music you know it doesn't exist until it's recorded so i like chipping away at stuff i mean there is we don't play live that often for a band that's done nine albums you know it's not like we do an album and then do a six month tour or something so that helps you know we do i don't know, you know some years we might do a dozen gigs other years we might do half a dozen gigs if that so that helps and we tend to work quite fast really also of course because i used to just do stuff on my own for years you know i've got tapes and tapes and tapes of songs that i wrote when i was late teens and throughout my 20s when i was doing my four track stuff some of those I occasionally resurrect, not because I'm short of ideas, they're just ones that I think, actually, that's, a, that's quite decent, you know. There aren't many like that, but there's a few where I think the melody or the lyrics or something, usually the melody lyrics are usually terrible, but um, where I resurrect it. So there are a couple of Cult and a Name songs, like 
On Another Landing, the song Unique is a really old song I did when I was in my early 20s. There are a couple other examples where I resurrect melodies or whole songs. So there's a, there's a lot of dark humour in, in your yeah. work. I'm just, I mean, even looking at the titles, there are some of the ones that yeah. really make me laugh. I mean, fake nudes make Which, me laugh. Like, fake nudes. Oh, fake news. Because I blame me, Blind Dogs for the Guide. Yeah. Where did that oh, come from? Oh, thank you. Uh, I just thought of it as a phrase. I like thinking in, well, one of my lyrical inspirations is, you know, Hugh Cornwell, and I've always aspired to his level of wit. In the early days, I desperately wanted to be uh, as witty as him on stage. You know, I used to write little jokes and things on my on the set list. Like, oh, I was painful, you know, and then I realised I just can't do that. But if I'm not in, in front of an audience, I can be witty at times and I just um, it just came just a phrase and I th and then sometimes the song title usually the ones that are the good song titles the title comes first uh, and then I think how can I write a song about that sometimes it does gel you know like she sells incels I heard a radio program about incels and I just heard the phrase she sells incels came on mind. I thought oh, that'd be a great way to to have a pop at incels and then you know with blind dogs for the guys I just had that phrase and I thought that's quite neat. What could I write about? And it was. I thought, well, it was just about misinformation. It's about how the internet. You just can't trust anything you read on the internet, and that's not a good thing. And it's it's not a good thing to just completely dismiss everything you read on the internet either. You know, there's a line in there. If you tear it up, does that make you sane? If you write it down, um, if you you know, so. Just dismissing everything you read is ridiculous, but obviously ex uh, believing everything you read is is ridiculous as well. There's just no middle ground. Well, so who are your your favourite lyricists? Well, yeah, I like, like, always admired The Stranglers. And, I mean, again, the humour stuff. Um, Sparks, you know, oh, I love yeah. Sparks. Some of their dark humour songs are the best as well. You know, there is a yeah. darkness to Sparks that I think people don't appreciate. Yes. Because it... It's not all glib, and uh, so that I, I I really admire. So you know, then you get surrealist people, people like Captain Beefheart, just because his lyrics are so surrealist and kind of like word painting. So there's a few sort of not not um, necessarily songs that song lyrics that are surrealist, but sometimes the subject matter is a bit surrealist for some of them. For Colton and Hame, people like Leonard Cohen, just because of the romance. You know, Scott Walker. I mean, just there's a song by. Um, I mean, I've got lots of songs, I think, where the lyrics are incredible. There's a song by Scott Walker called Hero of the War, which I think is just a remarkable lyric in terms of... Um, I like that kind of um, happy-sounding music, dark lyrics, or at least, you know, innocuous music, but really dark lyrics. Hero of the War is a brilliant example of that, if you look at the lyrics, because it's quite upbeat, but it's a very sarcastic um, uh, song, yeah. So what are the strangest things that have happened to you in uh, in the band's history? Your spinal tap moments. There's a couple that spring to mind. One, uh, and it's funny, this story, whenever I recount, I've recounted it a few times in various situations, and Kelly Lee, when she, if she's there, she cries with laughter. I remember <laughs> when I first told her, she, she, she just cried. Um, so I think it could have been Another Landing was the album. I can't remember which one. But we had the album finished. And we didn't have that. We had our, own, you know, we, we set up our own label in the end. But I thought, oh, let's, I'll, t I'll, I'll pass this around a few labels, see how it goes, you know. And there was a label that I knew, and I sent it to him, you know, just finish this album, you know, are you interested, blah blah blah. And uh, he said, oh, okay, I'll give it a listen. And then a week later, whatever, comes back, Eric, 
I don't know where to begin. This album is one of the most incredible things I've ever heard. I think it's remarkable. It's the production's just incredible. I just think it's absolutely amazing. And I think I think your music's actually it's you're wasted coming to us. We're probably not big enough. I think you need to, you know, in fact I want to help you. I want to try and market this to like a major label. Uh, I think it's that amazing. And I'm like, bloody hell, thank thanks very much. That's incredible. I'm so excited. And then Another few days come past and I get another email from the guy and he goes, I'm really, really sorry. I mixed your album up with someone else's. Oh, <laughs> was absolutely oh my brilliant. God. And he mixed it up. He, I can't remember what band it was, but he mixed it up with some band that's on Universal or something that sold like hundreds of thousands of records. But I just thought it was the funniest thing. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. But he was so, he was so beside himself because of what he'd done, you know. So that was really funny. I always thought it was hilarious. Even at the time, I thought it was hilarious. And, 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 you know, and it's like, you know, I'm really, really sorry. I mixed your band with someone else. And by the way, it's a no, you know. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> and then live, you get all sorts of bizarre incidents live. You know, I do, we, we did a gig not all that long ago. I'm talking years, not decades, where we, we played a pub. And we just turned up at the pub. And uh, it was a nice gig because it was only us. It was sort of our own evening. But... We turn up and there's there's like there's the stage and like, where's PA system and I went to the guy you know the promoter said um, where's the PA system he goes what what do you mean we actually put the other side of the bar at this time talking to him with a drink he says, there's there's no PA system where the PA system's coming right and he goes what what do you mean PA system you, you band the band brings the PA system and I'm like no 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 you you the, the venue provides the PA system and he goes oh anyway there is a PA system I said no there isn't there's like the stage is empty no there's a PA system there's a PA system let me show you and he <laughs> marches me across to the stage and he points you know to a thing on the wall sort of like half a metre from his finger I'm like he goes there, there there's the PA system I'm like uh, that, that's that's an electronic dart scoreboard <laughs> and it was an electronic it was a dart scoreboard and I was like yeah that's not that's <laughs> how so he thought that was the PA system so, so that was quite funny we, uh, I kind of got quite angry. Well, I didn't get angry with them. I said, you need to provide a PA system. And so he called up. So, oh, okay. And he found some mates to, uh, very nice of them, actually, this band, to deliver one. And we frantically set it up and did a blinding gig. You often do really blinding gigs when things go wrong just beforehand because you're so on edge that it turns out to be a really, really good gig. When you've got too much time to relax, that's sometimes not a good thing. And so you've got a new album that you've just finished, haven't you? Well, tell me about that. Um, how will it be different? Um, Kelly Ellie's on it again, isn't she? She's a great friend. She's brutally honest, Kelly. So if she thinks your album's crap, she'll tell you. Um, and, you know, when I sent it to her, you know, she came back and said, this is amazing, you know, love it, love it. And I have to say, we are, I know every band says this for every album, but we are really proud of the next one. So you're not going to get an email in a couple of days from Kelly saying she said it to the wrong person? Yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> hopefully not. Well, she's done the vocals for half the track okay. now, so so hopefully that's okay. And, um, yeah, I love that story. And and uh, so it's it's done, basically. Kelly might do a couple of more vocals. Tell us about the songs on there. Well, yeah, it's a bit more serious, I guess, just because the world has turned a bit more serious at the moment. Isn't it? And, and um, there are a couple of COVID songs, related songs. We try and be a little bit contemporary if we can. That's the good thing about producing hours reasonably regularly, is you can at least reference. Like, for example, Media Bird's got a couple of songs about Trump on, which, would, of course, would have made no sense if 
fingers crossed, post post December, he's not yeah. the president. So you have to be conscious of that. I mean, we, there's there's a song called After the Storm, which uh, Blaine plays on, which is very kind of epic, which is just the observation about how, you know, people are talking about, you know, you've got your NHS clap for carers and you've got all these lovely random acts of kindness and people checking on their neighbours and stuff. But all that came once everyone had finished scratching each other's eyes out to get hold of toilet paper. It was just the observation how everyone's all well and good, you know, whole community spirit stuff is there, but it, it wasn't at the beginning. And people forget that actually when, when, when the, the shit hits the fan, everyone's just out in it for them, out for themselves. And then the stuff, then they think about their neighbours and then they think about, you know, other people. And then there was another, another sort of COVID one, which was a friend of mine who's a real uh, kind of wellness guru to an, to a, a, an extreme, got COVID, tested positive and stuff and claimed she cured herself through meditation. <laughs> it's just questioning, you know, the limits of that really. But it, in a, on a more serious level, it's that kind of that placebo effect, you know, what is the limit? Can can the placebo effect cure someone of COVID is quite an interesting uh, question to ask. So there's a sort of a song about that. And then there's songs about very specific things. Last year in Spain, I visited this amazing town called Belchit. B-E-L-C-H-I-T, I guess that's how you pronounce it, B-E-L-C-H-I-T-E, and it's a ruin, it's a, if you Google it, it's a village that was completely destroyed in the Spanish Civil War, and it's left, been left as a ruin, and they rebuilt the town next door, Franco did. You get a tour of it and stuff, and it's just about the, me visiting these ruins, and how it was, it was used as a propaganda tool in the Spanish Civil War on both sides, because it was, it was used on the, on the one side by the, by the, the, uh, in terms of you know look what the military can do and then the military saying look what we can do so it was just just how uh, how monuments can uh, can be used in different ways to tell a story and for propaganda purposes so as as there's that there's there's some there's some very dark stuff on it there's a really dark song but very happy with it from a musical point of view a really dark song called Noah's Ark which is about that painful awful story about that girl in in Netherlands called uh, Noah Pothoven who um, she was uh, raped as a child and it affected her so badly she never recovered and she starved herself to death and the government uh, allowed it to happen and the parents allowed it to happen so it's often talked about euthanasia it's but it wasn't euthanasia because it wasn't assisted but what they just said is they just let her kind of pass away so it was a just a really profound kind of really hit me quite hard that one so yeah so it's it's, it's uh usual happy uh happy assortment of cult with a name themes but um yeah but it's but we are very you know we are we are happy with it and uh, when will this come out will you release it in the next few months it's difficult we probably will hold back till next year but the, the danger then is that i think a lot of people are doing recording lockdown albums at the moment so I think next year is going to be a really busy year for releases, which is not great. But then uh, to get it out before Christmas, we probably have to rush a little because you need a six month lead in time, which we didn't give Media Burn, which I don't think was was too clever. Actually, we should have given ourselves a bit longer. And um, yeah, so so um, next year, yeah, March, maybe. I don't know, something like that. Well, that was great, Eric. Fantastic. Thank you. Great, you know, thank you. Thanks for the great questions.
This is Blind Dogs for the Guides from 2019's album Media Burn. Thanks to Eric for his time and congratulations to him and Pega for recently becoming parents. Thanks also to Helen Breeden and Mark Taplin. Goodbye. <laughs>